Welcome to the WGN Radio Theater, program 474 in this series. It's June 20th, 2020, and Lisa Wolf is here. What's up, Lisa? Hey, Carl. What's up? Glad to be here. Excited to present some great classic radio tonight. That's right. We have eight classic radio shows because we have a new format, eight shows over a five-hour program. We're here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to start things off with Boston Blackie starring Dick Kalmar. We'll have the Burns and Allen show, then Inner Sanctum, Taylor of the Texas Rangers with Joel McRae, the Abbott and Costello show, the Mole Mystery Theater, Gangbusters, and Fibber McGee and Molly. And of course, everybody knows that Boston Blackie is your favorite radio show. So That's right. I'm sure our listeners will love it as well. Why do you think I'm playing it first? I can't imagine. Why? You know, I'm playing Boston Blackie <laughs> first, and we'll have that in just a moment. But I want to remind everyone listening that if you would like to turn some of your fine jewelry into cold, hard cash, you need to call my pal, Matt Burdine at Burdine's Jewelers. Burdine's has a toll-free number to call, 800-875-4418. If you call Matt Burdeen, tell him you heard this radio ad. He will give you a free appraisal on your fine jewelry. Now, why let that fine jewelry sit in a dresser drawer or in a safety deposit box when you can turn it into cash? And Matt will pay you top dollar. I've sent him all kinds of business, and my friends and family have been really, really satisfied. And I know, Lisa, you sort of revitalize some of your jewelry, right? I did. And most importantly, I trust you, Carl. And if you trust Matt, then I trust Matt. Call Matt Burdeen, 800-875-4418. Mention this radio offer. Now, you can go to his website, too. That's burdeens.com, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. He has all kinds of wonderful jewelry for sale there. Or you can sell him your fine jewelry, or you can revitalize your jewelry. All right, Boston Blackie is coming your way after these words. Hour one of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa Wolf and I are here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. Tell a friend. We play all your favorite classic radio shows here on the greatest radio station in the world, WGN. We're going to start things off with Boston Blackie. Now, this amateur detective character was created by author Jack Boyle. And Boston Blackie was actually a criminal and a safe cracker and a master thief. But he went to jail and he was rehabilitated. And then he used his knowledge of the underworld to fight crime. He was known as enemy to those who make him an enemy, friend to those who have no friends. Sort of like you, Lisa. I was thinking about you, Carl. (laughs) And uh, we first saw Boston Blackie in silent films from 1919 until 1927. Then in 1941, Columbia Pictures cast Chester Morris in 14 films of Boston Blackie. They were very popular. They were B-movies, but really, really successful and popular. So there was a radio series in 1944 on NBC that Chester Morris played the character in. And then one year later in 1945, Ziv, which was a big radio syndicator, created a Boston Blackie series for syndicated radio starring Dick Kalmar. And they produced about 200 episodes. Then there was a television series starring Kent Taylor that began in 1951. 
We have a radio broadcast for you now, starring Dick Kalmar, called The Stolen Rare Book from September 3rd, 1946. We're going to listen to this uninterrupted. Now here's Boston Blackie. library, young lady. Please, lower your voice. Oh, I'm very, very sorry. Oh, my dear young lady, you don't have to overdo it. Well, I wasn't overdoing it. I was just speaking too softly for a moment to make up for speaking too loudly a moment before. Is there something I can do for you, or have you just come into the library to be annoying? Oh, I'm sorry. I really am, and there is something you can do for me. I understand you have a valuable first edition, and I would like to see it, if I may. You may see it, but whatever it is, you can't take it out. Uh, I can't. No. All the rare and valuable books must stay in the vault. I'll give you a pass. Name, please. Mary Wesley. Address? 1219 Dale Avenue. Here, here's your pass. Give it to the attendant when you get into the vault. Thank you. Now you tell me something. Where's the vault? Right there, that first door on the left. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Quick, somebody, quick. In the rare book vault, that the attendant in there is dying. What? What's the matter? I don't know. Where's the telephone? He he just dropped over. I'll call an ambulance and get a doctor. You and, and you two help him. Somebody do something. And now, meet Dick Calmer as Boston Blackie. Enemy to those who make him an enemy. Friend to those who have no friend. Please, please, can't you people be quiet? This is a public library. People are trying to read in here. Not anymore, they're not. And when I want quiet, I'll get it. Quiet! Quiet, everybody! See what I mean? Yes, Inspector Faraday. And now if you lower your voice, everything If will I be... lower my voice? Yes, Faraday, it's easy. Just lower it to match your IQ. Quiet, Blackie. What's your name, lady? Uh, Jane Calvin. I'm the assistant librarian in charge of this vault. Uh-huh. What happened here? I don't know exactly. I was busy well, at I my... Think I can explain, Inspector Faraday. You can? Who are you? Oh, my name's Vivian Peterson. Uh, I was there in the vault when the attendant collapsed. Alone? Yes. Only the attendant and I were in there. And when he fell to the floor, I thought he was dead and ran out to call an ambulance. One of these other women must have called the police. Yes, I called the police. What did you do, Miss Wesley? Remove the body? There wasn't any body, Inspector Faraday. When I got in there, we found out that the man was alive and... When the ambulance got here, it took him to the hospital. Oh, I see. How do you happen to be here, Blanky? Mary called me when she thought there might be trouble here. How right she was. She must have known you'd come down on the call. That's enough out of you, Blanky. Inspector, please. Yeah, Miss Calvin, I know, I know. This is a public library. And people are reading, Faraday. Don't you wish you'd learn to? Look, Blanky, you have no business being here. From what I can see so far, neither have I. Come on, Rollins, we're getting out of here. Yes. So soon, Faraday? Oh, don't do that. They have some picture books in the children's department. Why don't you... You go... be quiet, Blanky. I'll... Faraday, Faraday, lower your voice. This is a public library, and you People must... People are reading. Uh, come on, Rollins, there's nothing wrong here. Yes, sir. A guy faints, and they call the police. An ambulance, and Miss Wesley here calls Boston Blackie. <laughs> it's a good case for you to work on, Blackie. There's no crime, no suspects, no angles, no mystery. And you've got just the kind of a oh, mind... Oh, to... good heavens, how awful. 
What do you mean, how awful, Miss Calvin? What's awful? A first edition of Radway's Faust. One of the most valuable books in the vault is missing. What? How do you know? This paper. The checker here just gave it to me. Radway's Faust is missing. It's the only copy of its kind. It's worth thousands. It's been stolen. Uh, calm down, Miss Calvin. Tell me, was it here before the attendant had his attack? Yes, yes, it was. So there's no crime, huh, Faraday? Not much. You're right. This is just the case for me. Blackie, you stay out of this. You hear me? Stay out of this. Or... Shh, shh, shh. Inspector, this is a public library, remember? Yeah, I know. People are reading books. Well, that's nothing. But apparently people are stealing books, too. to Johnstown? Yeah, just keep driving straight about four miles. Hey, there's a car stop back there where you just stopped. Somebody following you? I wouldn't be surprised. Thank you. Better take it easy on that road, lady. It's going to finish up right after about 100 yards. Oh, darn. Fine time for a blowout. Well, look who's here. Hello, Miss Peterson. Were you going somewhere? Yes, I was, Miss Wesley. And if you are, don't let me stop you. I knew you were following me, of course. Did you? You should be glad I was. Come on, I'll give you a lift back to the city. You can't very well ride back on that flat tire. I wasn't going back to the city. Well, maybe you weren't, but you are now. I thought it was your boyfriend, Boston Blackie, who was the tough member of your team, Miss Wesley. I don't know why you followed me, and I don't care. Well, you will. Look, Miss Peterson... Inspector Faraday told me that Angus, the library attendant, was fed knockout drops. You were the only one in that library vault when he keeled over. Now, I think there's a connection, especially since you suddenly decided to leave town. Better mind your own business, Miss Wesley. Better get in that car of yours and keep going. Nope, unless you meant that that would be better for you. I'll tell you something else I found out. That you work for Harold Benson, the rare book dealer. What about it? Worked for a rare book dealer? Very rare book missing from a library, and you were in the library at the time. Doesn't that strike you as being peculiar? Miss Wesley, I don't think you realize I was searched before I left the library after the book was reported missing. By the way, were you... Nope. Mary Wesley, friend of the notorious Boston Blackie, just happens to be in a library where a very valuable book is suddenly found missing, isn't searched when she leaves. Doesn't that strike you as peculiar? Get in this car, Miss Peterson. Get in here before I... What? Knock me out the way you did the library attendant? Well, no, but that isn't such a bad idea. Maybe I will at that. Then again, maybe you won't. See what I mean? Oh, pretty. Pearl-handled and quite effective, I imagine. This gun? Very. Well, at least it proves that I was right. Miss Peterson, you don't dare shoot me. And when I tell the police what I know... What is it you know, Miss Wesley? I know the whole story. That you worked for Harold Benson, that he paid you to get hold of that copy of Radway's Faust, that you took care of the library attendant with knockout drops, that you got the book out somehow, and that you delivered it to Harold Benson. So you think I was trying to get out of town because Benson paid me to steal that book? Of course I do. Well, it's right. It has to be. Does it? Well, Miss Wesley, for your information, I just left police headquarters. They told me Harold Benson was murdered in his store an hour ago. Oh. Phew. Oh, I'm just a matter of lick, Mary. 
This book vault is small, but it's got more good hiding places. I know. Blackie, you've been looking for hours. Why don't you give up? Why? Because we searched the late Mr. Benson's store, we searched Benson's home, and we couldn't find that book. That means only one thing. Yeah, the book must still be here in the vault unless that Peterson girl took it. And Blackie, I still think that Vivian Peterson is guilty. I think not, Mary. She just got scared when Benson was killed and tried to get out of town. Well, this loose board in the wall here, this is our last hope. Hey, hey, you pulled that board all the way out, you know that? What's behind it? The end of our last hope, Mary, a blank wall. And that's what we're up against, too, a blank wall. That book just isn't here, that's all. Well, if it isn't here and you don't think Vivian Peterson has it, where is it? I don't know. It's obviously been taken out of here, but by whom and how? And where is it now? I wish you wouldn't ask questions like that. Maybe it's the questions that annoy you, Mary, but it's the answers that bother me. Yes? Mr. Joseph Caldwell? Yes. This is John Tobin, the book dealer, Mr. Caldwell. Oh, so? You are in the market for a certain book. A certain book? Yes. Very valuable book? Yes. The first and the only edition of Radway's Faust. Oh, but most definitely, Mr. Tobin. I have it for you, Mr. Caldwell. You do? But how? I have long been under the impression that the only one in existence is in the vault uh, of the city library. Was... I have the book. Now, if you have the price... Oh, but that goes without saying, Mr. Tobin. If you have the book, of course I have the price. But tell me, how did you manage to procure the book? How, Mr. Caldwell? I'm not surprised that you asked. A lot of other people would like to know that, too. What's the matter with you, Blanky? I've got a murder case on my hands, and all you worry about is a stolen book. You're what's the matter with me, Faraday. Ugh, I shouldn't waste my time trying to explain things to you. Don't you see, whoever stole that book also murdered Harold Benson. What makes you think so? I think so because Benson was an honest man. He knew who stole the book and threatened to go to the police unless the book was returned. He was shot and killed for his trouble. Uh, And you ought to be shot and killed for the trouble you caused me. All right, so your theory is okay. Whoever stole the book killed Benson. Who stole the book? Now, you're with me. First of all, let's figure out who didn't. Well, Mary Wesley didn't. Oh, that's generous of you, Inspector. No, Mary didn't. Miss, uh, Miss Calvin didn't. The library attendant? No, I think not. Miss Peterson didn't. No, she proved that, I think, when she decided to come back to town with Mary. Well, Benson didn't. He wasn't near the library. Besides, he's dead. Excellent deduction, Faraday. So who did steal the book? Nobody. Who's left? Angus, the attendant in the vault. Why, you get dumber every day. How could Angus have stolen the book? He was carried out of the vault unconscious. Besides, he was in the hospital when Benson was shot. Faraday, your logic is perfect. And so is your record for not getting anything done. Sure, I know Angus is an impossible suspect, but the possible suspects are either dead or innocent. So? So, if you won't bother to go see Angus at the hospital, I will. Go ahead. What can he tell us that's important? I don't know. I only hope nobody got to him first and made sure Angus wouldn't be able to talk. Now, back to Boston Blackie. 
The disappearance of a valuable book from the public library is noticed when the vault attendant is taken to a hospital. Vivian Peterson, employee of Harold Benson, rare book dealer, is in the book vault at the time the theft is discovered, but Benson is subsequently murdered, removing one of Blackie's suspects. The book is still missing, but unknown to Blackie and the police, it has fallen into the hands of a Mr. Tobin who plans to sell it. Blackie and Mary Wesley have gone to the hospital to visit the ailing guard. How are you feeling, Mr. Angus? A little weak, thank you, but better. Good. I'm Boston Blackie, Angus, and this is Miss Wesley. Uh, How do you do, Mr. Angus? How do you do? Do you know what happened at the vault just afternoon today? No, I don't. I, I hardly know what happened to me. All I remember is being in the vault one minute... And then waking up in a Crawford ambulance in the next. In a Crawford ambulance? Yes. Hmm, strange. I should think you'd have been picked up by an ambulance from this hospital. And that's beside the point, I guess. Uh, What happened at the vault, Blackie? What? The one and only copy of the first edition of Radway's Faust was stolen. Stolen? Oh, no. Oh, yes. I understand you passed out after you came back from lunch. Yeah. Where did you eat? In the counter restaurant across the street from the library. Who'd you eat with? No one. I ate alone. Alone, huh? Knockout drops made you keel over in the rare books vault, but you ate alone. Hmm. Angus, who was in the vault when you passed out? Some girl. I don't know who she was. Why do you ask? I think she stole a book, Mr. Angus. That's why he asks. And I still think she killed her boss, Harold Benson, too. Blackie, won't you follow that hunch of mine? Gentlemen, even a raft or two in the dark. Uh, miss? Yeah, mister, what do you have? Uh, nothing on your menu. Just a little information. Well, just a minute. I gotta wait on some paint. Sure. Blackie, what are we doing in this restaurant? Just following your hunch, Mary. Oh. Angus says he ate here alone. Maybe he's not telling the truth. Now, that's just what I've kept saying. Vivian Peterson was in the vault when Angus passed out. She was there when the book was found missing, and the fact that she worked for Harold Benson, a rare book dealer, is just too much to be coincidence. Right? Certainly doesn't sound wrong. Now, what's this information you want, miss, to make it quick? I'm busy. Do you know Angus, the attendant in the rare book vault of the library? Angus? Yes, sure, I know him. Good. Did he eat here this noon? This noon? No. No, he ain't been here in a week. He's been meeting some dame across the street and going down to some other restaurant. He met this, uh, dame this noon? Yeah. How do you know? Because I've seen her walk down the library steps today. And she's a looker. You couldn't miss her. Is she tall, good-looking, long black hair? That ain't wrong, mister. How'd you know? Because from the description you just gave me, I know she's Vivian Peterson. Yeah? Well, maybe that means something, but doesn't to me. I'll be seeing you. Blackie, Mr. Angus said he didn't know Miss Peterson, and this girl said that she saw them together. So she did, Mary, which proves your hunch. Angus is not only lying in a hospital bed, he's lying, period. Come on, Mary, let's get out of here. Mm, Where are we going now? I think we'll pay a little visit to Vivian Peterson. Uh Uh-oh. Where do you drop me? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, Blackie, it's raining. I don't know why you say that. It's practically a cloudburst. Well, the... Restaurant is waterproof. Let's go back inside. Uh Uh-uh. We're going to get a cab, I hope. And go see Miss Peterson? For business reasons, Mary. Mm. Vivian Peterson called a Crawford ambulance for Henry Angus. I think the private ambulance angle tells me how the book was taken out of the vault. Well, it doesn't tell me, so suppose you do. The book was carried out 
on top of the Crawford ambulance stretcher and under the unconscious form of Henry Angus. You mean after Miss Peterson gave Mr. Angus the knockout drops. Then she went into the vault with him, waited for him to pass out, slipped the book under him, and then she called the Crawford ambulance service and had them pick up Mr. Angus and the book at the same time. Right. Look, uh, you stay under this awning. I'll go down to the corner there and see if I can't get a cab. All right. Don't go away now. I won't. Hey, taxi! Taxi! Okay, okay, don't stop. Looking for something, bud? Uh, yeah, a cab, but uh, put away that gun. Not even that'll get you a cab in weather like this. I ain't looking for a cab. I'm looking for you. Get in this car here. Why, I sure will. With pleasure, with pleasure. Um, but I'm not going to get in with you. Hmm, nice car the fellow decided to lend me. Much better than a taxi. Hey, Mary! Mary! Coming, Blackie, coming! Did you get a cab? Private car, Mary, hop in. Blackie, where did you get this car? See that fellow lying back there on the sidewalk? Oh, oh my gosh, what happened to him? No, nothing, hop in. But, but... He tried to force me into his car here with the help of a gun, but I persuaded him to lie down and let me take the car by myself. Oh, good heavens. No, good riddance. I don't think he was inviting me to take a joyride with him. Uh, no, no, not with a gun in his hand. Well, are we still going to see Vivian Peterson? Yes. We know how good she looks. Let's find out how well she talks. She doesn't seem to be home, Blackie. No, Miss Peterson is probably going to be as tough to find from now on as that book... Now, let's try the door. Huh, it's open. Good. How soon will we hear from Inspector Faraday about who owns the car we, um, uh, borrowed? I don't know. I phoned him the license number half an hour ago. You should know by now. We'll call him from here. Boy, it's dark in here. There's a light switch. Oh, yeah. There. Give Give me a light switch, and with my college education, I can turn on almost every light in the place. Right in here, isn't it? Yes, it's glaring. And look what I'm glaring at. Uh Uh-oh. It's Miss Peterson, and she looks slightly dead, Mary. Oh. I'd better call the police. There's the phone. Um, Blackie, I suppose you realize that I wasn't exactly right about Miss Peterson being guilty. I do now. You almost had me convinced, though. Well, then stop gloating, will you? Faraday speaking. Faraday, this is Blackie. Now what do you want? To tell you something very interesting. But first, I called you a little while ago to check on the license number of the car I picked up from a guy. You do it? Yeah, the car belongs to John Tobin. So what? So nothing. But I've got a little something for you, Faraday. What? You promised to leave town? No, it's something that won't please you quite as much as that. It's another body. Yeah, well, if you think you... Another what? Body. B-O-D-Y, body. And when it was walking around, it was called Vivian Peterson. The Peterson girl, huh? Well, I'll be... You probably are, Inspector. She's dead in her own apartment, and I don't think she'll go anywhere till you get here. If you hurry. Goodbye. Well, that's that. What are you doing, Mary? Still trying to pull a Boston Blackie and find a clue. Trying to show me up, huh? What'd you find? What did Inspector Faraday find out about the car you appropriated? Oh, a man named John Tobin owns it. Why? John Tobin, Blackie, he's mentioned in one of the letters here on Miss Peterson's desk. What? Let's see the letter. Here. 
Here it is. Hmm. Let me read it. It says, Since your present employer will not procure the book for me at any price, I have contacted John Tobin. The same offer goes if you want to work with Mr. Tobin. You will get 10% of my purchase price of the book. Signed, Joseph Caldwell. That's a funny way to spell Joseph with an F. Sounds foreign. And I can sound foreign too, Mary. Blackie, what are you going to do? Find Mr. Tobin's phone number in the telephone book. Uh, Miss Wesley, I, Mr. Joseph Boston Blackie Caldwell, would like to make the appointment to see him. Hello. Hello. Mr. John Tobin? Yes. Joseph Caldwell speaking. Joseph Caldwell? Yes. I understand you have that book that I wanted. Are you ready to see me and uh, do business? Well, I'm ready to see you. Is good. When? You better come right over, I think. Yes. Come over right away. I will be there. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hmm. This is a complication. Yes, Mr. Tobin? Mr. Tobin, why do you take out from that drawer a gun? Oh, don't be alarmed. It's not for you, Mr. Caldwell. It's for the man who just called to say he was Mr. Joseph Caldwell. Yes, come in. Mr. Tobin? Yes. I'm Mr. Caldwell. I was on the telephone with you. Oh, yes. Come in, Mr. Caldwell. Thank you. We can get right down to business, Mr. Caldwell. Yes, I think so. We can... Uh, say, uh, who is this man? You don't know, Mr. Caldwell? Uh, he's Mr. Caldwell. Uh-oh. He was here when you phoned. Now, don't move whoever you are. This gun might not care who you are. I'm Boston Blackie, and don't worry. I won't move. I advise you not to, Blackie. I won't be as easy to handle as the man I sent to pick you up in my car. Oh, so you sent that man to pick me up, did you? Did you think I was getting too close to tracing that book to you? That's right. Complimentary gesture, I'd say. May I ask one favor? The dying man on the last request? What is it? May I see the book that caused all this trouble? That can do no harm now. It's in this drawer here. Yeah, you may look at it, but please be careful that I see what you're doing. Oh, I'll be so careful it'll hurt. So this is the right way fast. Rather heavy, isn't it? That isn't important. It is old and it is rare. That is important. Mr. Caldwell here is prepared to pay plenty for it. I must have the book. I must have it. Well, you'll get it according to Mr. Tobin's plans, but not according to mine. Huh? I think he'll get it right in his big fat face. But... Poor boy. Doesn't think straight, doesn't shoot straight. Oh. Now don't you get gay, Caldwell. Just sit where you are. Well... A little learning can be a dangerous thing, they say. So can a big book. I threw that pretty accurately, don't you think? Well, I do not know. I do not know what this is about. No? It's about a book that was stolen. It's about an attendant that was knocked out. It's about a book dealer and his girl assistant who were murdered. And it's about the most complicated case I've ever worked on. So your theory was right, Blackie. Yes, Vivian Peterson stole the book from Mr. Tobin, all right, with the help of the ambulance men who were in on the plan. My theory about the murder of Harold Benson was right, too. Okay, sir, take a bow. <laughs> now, let's see. 
Benson figured out who had the book and threatened to go to the police. So Tobin killed him and had a clear field to sell the book to Mr. Caldwell. And Tobin killed Miss Peterson, too, didn't he? Right. Why? Same old story, Mary. Miss Peterson didn't bargain for murder when she agreed to steal the book. When Benson was killed, first she tried to run away, then she threatened to go to the police. Our friend Angus wasn't in on the deal. All he did was fall in love with Vivian Peterson and lie to us about not eating with her. Well, as long as the police have recovered the book, I don't think they'll be too rough on him, do you? Even though he may not get back his library job. Mm, maybe not. You know, Mary, I'm satisfied with everything about this case except one thing. What's that? Something you wanted to do and didn't? Yes. I wanted to tiptoe up in back of that librarian, Miss Calvin, and whisper in her ear... Quiet, please. People are reading. And that's Boston Blackie from September 3rd, 1946, with the stolen rare book starring Dick Kalmar. Dick Kalmar was married for many years to Dorothy Kilgallen. You remember her on What's My Line? And also in this show, uh, Leslie Woods. I'll never forget interviewing Leslie Woods, and I was kind of just getting into classic radio. You must have been about two or three then, <laughs> yeah. right? I was. I hadn't interviewed a lot of people yet, so I wasn't kind of, I didn't have my sea legs when like it came to... Like you are now. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, I went up to Leslie Woods, and I was like, oh my gosh, you're Leslie Woods. You played Mary Wesley on Boston Blackie, and she was like, oh yeah, and I said, could I, you know, tape an interview? I had a DAT machine at the time. Could I uh, tape an interview with you? And she was like, sure. So I said, well, do you remember that one Boston Blackie where you did this or the other thing? She was like, are you kidding me? She's like, "Are you seriously, are you kidding me? It was like 70 years ago. Well, you learned something gonna, about how to interview her from and that. I, I, boy, did I ever. <laughs> I tell you, that helped. This, she actually helped me with my interviewing skills. I don't know if I'm any better now, but... I don't think so. Uh, I'll never, I was like, oh boy, I probably shouldn't have asked her that. Right. right. Was she nice about it or a little annoyed? Not a little annoyed. A little right. bit annoyed. I, I get annoyed with you, too. <laughs> Maurice Tarplin <laughs> was also in that cast. He played Inspector Faraday. Hope you enjoyed Boston Blackie. It's time now, though, for Burns and Allen, George Burns and Gracie Allen. What a career they had, right? I mean, right. they were on radio, on television, in the movies. You couldn't get much more popular than George Burns and Gracie Allen. She was just tremendous. I mean, Gracie Allen, incredible. Uh, their radio show began way back in 1932. They were on the air 18 seasons they left radio in 1950 to pretty much concentrate on their television show. You know, some of these shows that made the transition, they kept both the radio and the TV show. Burns and Allen didn't. They they ended the radio show when they began the television show and very, very popular in both uh, formats. Uh, we have a broadcast for you now from October 14th, 1940, going way back early in their career. Here's uh, part one now of the Burns and Allen show. From Hollywood, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Spam. Crazy people. Spam, rebuff, boom, spam. George Burns and Gracie Allen. On the show when his orchestra For singing glee with a smoothie sweet Last but not least in With Bud Heaston 
our Spam family, George and Gracie. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, but wait, George. I saw you and Gracie at the El Capitan Theater last week in Charlo's Review, and you're really swell. Thanks, bud. And Gracie, wasn't Jack Benny a wonderful master of ceremonies? Yes. He's certainly smart looking on the stage. Well, of course, gray hair makes a man look distinguished. Yeah. Of course, he's a little more distinguished looking in the back, though, than he is in the front, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, she's kind of losing it a little bit. Yeah. Well, anyway, Gracie, I was on the stage with you. How did I look? When do you mean? When I was... Telling all those jokes. Oh. Well, you must have looked all right. Nobody laughed at you. <laughs> of course, I may not be as handsome as Jack Benny. I say I may not be as handsome as Jack Benny. Well, George, who's arguing with you? That's <laughs> what I get for letting that makeup man put on my lips with a hairbrush. But, George, I thought your makeup looked swell. And the show was great, but I was disappointed in one little thing. What was that, bud? Well, I can't understand how you could come out on the stage time and time again and not once mention spam. But, bud, it was impossible. You see, I wasn't on the radio. I was on the stage. Well, I could understand you're not mentioning something like Chlorfmeyer's Acidophilus Milk, but spam is just a small word. Look, spam. See, did that take long? Well, I'm sorry, bud, but I, I, I just couldn't mention it. Well, you should have. Well, anyway, Gracie... What's more, your makeup looked atrocious. <laughs> now he's mad. How do you like that, bud? And, and just a moment ago, he complimented me. Ah, uh, don't believe his compliments about your makeup. Underneath that, there's something very peculiar. <laughs> Look, Gracie, I just assumed you were on Bud's side. Well, George, I think you like this. I heard one of the chorus girls backstage say that you look... Just like that great movie actor, you really? know. One of the court girls? Oh, what's his name now? You know the fellow who runs after all the women. Oh, uh, oh, March. That's it, March. Frederick March? The Harpo. <laughs> Harpo March. One of the March brothers. Yes. Gracie, how can you figure out so many wrong answers to so many right questions? I stay up late. <laughs> you know, someday I'll figure out something that you won't have a silly answer to. Then what do you do? Say, what do we both do? <laughs> oh, by the way, Gracie, I saw George in the theater yesterday, but he didn't see me. Yeah, I know. He told me. <laughs> well, I did not. And by the way, Artie, how did you like me? Oh, you were swell, Pootsie, especially with those Dolores Del Rio lips. Well, <laughs> never mind how I look. How did I sound? How did you sound? George, I'd like to say right here and now that you gave the finest performance I ever saw. Really, Artie? Yep, I'd like to say it, but I can't. <laughs> well, from you, that's practically a compliment. I'll leave it to Gracie. Gracie, who is the nicest among the men? Me. <laughs> I meant among the men. Well, that's where I was. <laughs> Gracie, how is it that other people can have a simple conversation without making it that simple? You could have at least mentioned it during the intermission. Mention what? Spam. Oh, we're back to that again, are we? All I did was go on the stage one week and look at what's happening. Yo también fui ahí a la función al Capitán Teatro. Estaba muy bonito. Me gustó mucho como actuaste tú allá en el asunto. Muy bonito. What is it, Senor Lee? Senor Burns, I saw you on the stage and you were very witty. You made some very flop remarks. It isn't flop. It's flip. Flop. Flip. Flop. Flip. What are we, acrobats? Oh, quiet. Well, Artie, what are you going to play tonight? 
Stardust. You know, Artie, I love to listen to you play. I think you're the greatest clarinet player in the world. Oh, I'd give anything if I could play that instrument. Is it hard? No, nothing to it, Gracie. Here, I'll show you. You pucker up your lips like this. Yeah. The upper lip and the lower lip. Yeah. Then you bring both lips together until your mouth is puckered like this. See? Oh. <laughs> oh, that that's wonderful, Artie. But why waste it on a clarinet? <laughs> Will you please take it?
Well, Artie, that was grand. You know, I love stardust. Well, Artie, what do you think of my voice? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Jealous, that's all. Just oh, jealous. George, George, you know that beautiful white dress I wore on the stage last week? At the El Capitan? Yes. yes. Well, I got some brown makeup on the collar and it worried me well, so... Well, I wouldn't worry about it. It's bound to come off. Was it Max Factors? No, Charles Boyer's. <laughs> How did Charles Boyer's makeup happen to get on your color? Well, Herbert Marshall was busy. <laughs> See what you mean Well, all you had to do Was send the dress to the cleaners Oh, not me I'm too smart for that mm. I-, I went out and bought Ten cents worth of gasoline To clean my dress And wait till you see it It's beautiful The dress or the gasoline? The car I bought <laughs> It's long you, and uh, streamlined you, you bought a car? Well, I had to have something To take the gasoline home in <laughs> So, uh, you bought a new car? You could have taken it home in an old can, you know. Yeah, but I didn't know where you had it parked. <laughs> well, my car doesn't happen to be an old can. I want you to know it's streamlined. It has chrome wheels, chrome radiator, chrome bumpers. That's right, George. I saw it, and it's plenty chromey. <laughs> well, I like it. At least you could have mentioned it during Jack Benny's violin solo. Enough of that. No matter what I say or do, I get into hot water. Oh, I was in hot water last night. What happened? Nothing. I was just taking a bath. <laughs> well, congratulations, and let's talk about something else. All right, let's talk about my dress. You know that beautiful white dress? Gracie, I got to Gracie, make a... you've already told me about that dress, and let's forget the dress. I never liked that dress anyway. Skippy likes it. <laughs> Skippy? Who's Skippy? Oh, he's the man who's been driving me home from the theater. I met him at the Coconut Grove next week. <laughs> Next week? Oh, pardon me, I'm ahead of my story oh. You mean last week? Yes Well, how did you meet him? Well, I was at the Coconut Grove And he was sitting at a table all by himself And I walked by and dropped my handkerchief And he heard it fall and said, how do you? I said, how do you? Just a second How can anybody hear a handkerchief fall? I had it wrapped around the glass <laughs> Well, uh, didn't that break the glass? No, but it broke the ice, if you know what I mean. I think I know what you mean, yes. Well, anyway, the music started to play, and he said, Do you like La Conga? And I said, Well, anything you're eating is good enough for me. <laughs> so he ordered some La Conga, and we Wait a minute, that sounds like a very smart kid. Ordering a dish of La Conga, huh? Well, what's wrong with that? There's an R in this month. <laughs> well, I forgot about that. Oh! That reminds me, Judge. I- I've got to call Skippy on the phone and tell him I'll be a little late picking him up. You see, I'm having a few minor changes made on my new car. Oh, you're making a few changes? Yes. I put the headlights in the rumble seat, and then I put the radiator where the taillight was, smart, yes. and I-, I put the motor where the gas tank used to be, and the steering wheel is right over the license plate, Gracie, and then I'm... Gracie, Gracie, look. What did you do all those things for? Well, in case some crazy dope asks me if I got a car like that, I got one. <laughs> well, for a minute, I didn't think you had a reason. Well, George, I'll see you later. I've got to go out and call Skippy. Mm. So, see, what's his number? Oh, oh yes. Gladstone 1131. Windshield wiper on the inside. George, yes. George, maybe she's overworked. Maybe she's suffering from a pancreatic 
ganglia of the hypocatal of the cerebellum. That's the first half of the Burns and Allen show from a broadcast date of October 14th, 1940, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. That was sponsored by Spam, your favorite food. Lisa eats Spam like every single day. Right. Well, it's on every shelf in every grocery store. So somehow, some way it has persisted through time, no doubt. Also, the sponsor on this is Hormel's Chili Con Carne. You like that? There you go. You like that, too, right? I do. I'm you a mix it. You have a little spam. A little spam, a little chili. I'm good to go. <laughs> Getting uh, hungry, Carl. <laughs> I know. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more of the WGN Radio Theater. All that talk about chili con carne and spam made me think about why we should order Vistro, because meat's not good for you. You should be eating better food for you. And Vistro is the answer. Right, for sure. Vistro is so healthy. Now, Vistro was started by a brother and sister, Mark and Monica, and they grew up in Costa Rica where fresh home-cooked meals with a lot of vegetables and fruits were the daily normal. And they're bringing that healthy outlook to us here via Vistro. And so Vistro is all about what feeds us, our body, our soul, all delicious, organic, healthy, and sustainable sustainable from plants, fully prepared anytime we want it. I eat Vistro every single day. I love Vistro, and I love, especially love the oatmeal that they, oh, yeah, oatmeal is good. I love it for breakfast. Well, they have some wonderful meals. They come frozen. All you do is put it in the microwave or the oven. There's no chopping. There's no shopping. There's no cooking. There's no cleanup. Just fresh, healthy meals delivered right to your door. Go to their website. That's vistro.com, V-E-E-S-T-R-O.com. Get 15% off your first order. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear about how much you are loving your Vistro meals just as much as Carl and I do. All right. When we come back from the news, it's the conclusion to the Burns and Allen show. Then it's inner sanctum mystery. You won't want to miss it. See you after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. In this hour, we will have the conclusion to the Burns and Allen show and then a half-hour episode of Inner Sanctum Mystery, one of the scariest of the radio shows. Uh, Also, don't forget to join the Museum of Broadcast Communications. You can experience the museum from wherever you live. You can support it with $49 a year, and with $49, you get free unlimited museum admission. You get exhibition previews. You get a free monthly newsletter, a discount at the museum store, invitations to all sorts of member events, and you get 70 free radio shows emailed to you just for being a member of the Museum of Broadcast communications. Wow, classic radio shows. Right. Huh? What 70 a, of them? I was going to say, what a great merger between the museum and classic radio. You can check it all out at their website, which is museum.tv. Yep, museum.tv. Join the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Support a great cause. When we come back, it's Burns and Allen and Inner Sanctum. Stick around. Welcome back to Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. We've been on the air here five years, Lisa, playing 
all your favorite classic radio shows. You name it, we have it. The Shadow, Abbott and Costello, Jack Benny, Burns and Allen Inner, Sanctum, Escape, Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Travel, Richard Diamond, Private Detective. I can go on. Oh, I know you could. On. We also have a Facebook page, which is WGN Radio Theater. If there's something that you'd like to hear or you have any comments or questions about what you've already heard, feel free to contact us that way through our Facebook page. That's right. All right. Last hour, we began listening to Burns and Allen, George Burns and Gracie Allen, from October 14, 1940. Here's the conclusion. Uh, Artie. Can I try that over again? Artie, what does that mean? Well, what am I, a quiz kid? Artie, this is, son, this is nothing to kid about. I'm worried about Gracie. I wonder what could have happened to her. Uh, perdóname un momento. Señor Burns, in Hollywood, anything can happen. I once walked down Hollywood Boulevard, and something bit me, and for five days, I was in a coma. <laughs> it's not coma, it's coma. A coma is a little thing with a tail. That's what beat me. <laughs> well, it's too bad you recovered. Still can't figure this thing out. I can. It's very simple, George. Really, bud? Sure, you could have mentioned it during the overture. <laughs> All right, so I didn't mention Spam. Here's a whip. Beat me, beat me. Daddy, eight to the bar. <laughs> Oh, quiet. Look, I've got to do something to help Gracie. Well, Skippy wasn't in, but I told the operator to keep trying and call me back here. Well, look, Gracie, just take it easy. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about? There's plenty to worry about. That Skippy is kind of crazy. He does crazy things. He does crazy Mm -hmm. things? What kind of a fella is the Skippy? Well, he's a short, thin fellow, and he weighs 250 pounds. If he's short and thin, how can he weigh 250 pounds? I told you he was crazy. Look, Artie, we've just got to do something. Oh, that must be Skippy. Hello? Sorry, Gladstone 1131 is still busy. Well, keep trying it, please. Well, now, don't worry, Gracie. Everything will be all right. Oh, just relax. I just hope so, because Skippy is so much fun. The other day, we went down to the beach, and we threw pebbles in the water and gathered seashells in his toupee. <laughs> Gathered seashells in his toupee? Yes. But Skippy must have a great head. Sure, that's where he shines. <laughs> oh, well, well, let's forget Skippy. Oh, oh, oh I must tell you this. Then they forgot he's... everything. He's really a card. While we were down at the beach, he buried his head in the sand, and I laughed and laughed and laughed for hours. He buried his head in the sand? Yes. Well, what's so funny about that? Well, two hours later, when I left him, he was still looking for it. You just have to meet Skippy. Well, I'll be glad to, Gracie, but some other time. Well, you should have been at the beach with us yesterday. We swam all afternoon, and we only moved four feet. You only moved four feet? That's all the feet we had. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I've been with you for years, but this is the first time you've really got me worried. Mr. Burns, I know I'm only the sound man, but I think I may be able to help you solve Miss Allen's problem with a scientific test. For years at Harvard, I studied psychiatry under that famous mind specialist, Professor Alvin W. Thorndike. Thorndike? A-B-B-S-M-A-P-H-D. Well, that's not a funny way to spell Thorndike. Gracie, he's using pig Latin. Oh. Look, 
Sound man, try your test on Bud and show Gracie what you mean. Don't talk to me. I'm mad at you. Now, please, Bud. Well, Mr. Heaston, I'd like to give you a simple test. This is called the Free Association of Ideas. Now, when I say cold, what do you unconsciously think of? Uh, hot. That's right. Now, what made you think of that? Spam. Spam? Yes, because cold or hot, it hits the spot. See, George, how easy it is to get in? <laughs> but, but it fits here. Besides, you've had more experience than I have. This is your 269th broadcast for Spam. 269th broadcast for Spam? That's right. So that's why you feel so chipper, Bud. Sure, Gracie. You see, when I started, very few people knew about Spam. Hormel had found a new combination of meats, a more delicious way to season it, and a handier package to put it in. Spam was something new and different. Nobody else had ever even tried to make anything like Spam. And now there are more than 60 imitations of it. Oh, so that's what makes you feel good. You like imitations. Oh, no, Gracie, it, it hurts me when I see an imitation. When you have more than 60 imitations, you know there must be all sorts of products and all sorts of prices among them. I'm afraid somebody will be fooled. Oh, I get it. You feel good tonight because you like to see people get fooled. Oh, no, Gracie, I feel good tonight because apparently people aren't letting themselves be fooled. I just found out today that in the last six months, the housewives of America bought more spam than they did all the other 60 brands combined. And that proved women aren't being fooled by low prices, special premiums, or by packages that look a good deal like spam, or by names that seem like spam. I feel good tonight, Gracie, because now I know women can really tell the difference. Oh, and you feel good, too, because we're going to let you tell us. What is the difference? Well, Gracie, when Spam first came out, people hadn't learned whether it was beef or pork or cheese or fish, so we labeled it all-pork product. When someone else came out with some other product and called it all-pork, too, we began to realize that all-pork takes in a lot of territory and that we could make a lot cheaper product if we used just any kind of pork. Spam, Gracie, is a combination of pork shoulder meat and ham meat. Nothing else but those two. We use pork shoulder to make Spam a sweet and juicy meat. Then we put in the ham it takes to give it extra flavor and goodness that wouldn't be there without it. That is different than being just all pork. Spam shows on the label this sentence, pork shoulder meat with ham meat added. Look for it. Whenever the occasion calls for a delicious meat at your house, ask your food dealer for Spam. S-P-A-M. Slice it, dice it, fry it, bake it, cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. No, Gracie, will you come here a minute? Look, this is what the sound man means. If he says black, you say white. If he says Edison, you say electricity. Mm -hmm. Now we'll start again. Go ahead, sound man. <clears throat> Power. Jerome. <laughs> no, no, Gracie, that's wrong again. Miss Allen, I'm merely trying to find out your mental capacity. Well, it isn't very much. I only drink to be sociable. <laughs> In order to reach a solution for your present dilemma, we must first go back to your childhood. Oh, that'll be fun. I haven't been back there for years. <laughs> Look, Gracie, what he means is, did anything strange happen to you when you were very young? Yes. What? I was born. <laughs> I know you were born. Mm, now, let's see. When was I born? It was, uh, it was Tuesday. No, it was... Thursday. No. no, maybe it was Wednesday. It couldn't be Friday. No, no, I'm never home on Friday. Sound man, are you sure those questions are right? You'd never know from the answers. Mm. <laughs> well, this is all beyond me. I wonder what could have happened to her. Uh, Senor Burns, maybe when she was a baby, she climbed on top of the house and fell off the reef. 
It isn't Reef, it's Roof. Reef. Roof. Reef. Roof. 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 Luke and Airedale. Go ahead, Mr. Salman. Continue with your test. Mr. Burns, it's hopeless for me to try and continue this test alone. Perhaps Professor Thorndyke can give me some advice as to a different method of questioning. I shall go out and phone him. Well, this has really got me upset. Chrissy, how can you be so rattle-brained? Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm just smart. Look, this is really beginning to get me. I've been with you for years. Every year you get sillier and sillier. Why I stick by you, I can't understand. And what do I get out of it? A fortune. <laughs> I do not. Besides, Gracie gets half of all the money we make. Don't you, Gracie? $25 every week. <laughs> well, I'm saving the rest for a rainy day. Oh, so that's why you came to California. <laughs> Well, go. Your line is over. Oh, that's Skippy. Quiet, everybody, now. Hello? Gladstone 1131 is still busy. Well, call me the minute they're through, operator. Can't imagine why Skippy is talking so long. Maybe it's hard for him to hang up, huh? On account of the phone is under the bed. His phone is under the bed? Yes. Well, you see, it's a Murphy bed, and he doesn't want Murphy to hear his conversation. <laughs> Look, Gracie, instead of spending all your Mr. time... Mr. Burns, I have wonderful news. I spoke to Professor Thorndike, and he was so interested in the case that he's coming right over here. I guess that's quite an honor, isn't what it? What an honor. You see, he'll watch Miss Allen's mind and see what makes it tick. But suppose it doesn't tick. No ticky, no watchy. <laughs> I hope Thorndike gets here before it's too late. <gasps> oh, that must be Skippy. Hello? Gladstone 1131 is still busy. Well, keep trying, please. Gracie, will you stop with those silly phone calls? Can't imagine why Skippy's line is so busy. That's his private number, too. Oh, there's Professor Thorndike now. Mr. Burns, would you mind opening the door? <laughs> Me open the door? But you're the sound man. Please, Mr. Burns, just this once. Professor Thorndike must never know that I, the winner of the Harvard Scientific Research Scholarship, do that for a living. Well, all right. Come in. Good evening, Elliot, my boy. Good evening. Folks, this is Professor Thorndike, the famous psychiatrist. Oh, glad to meet you, Professor. Pull up a brain and sit down. Quiet, quiet. Say, Professor, you're pretty. <clears throat> you, uh, you like men, I gather. No, I like men, I gather. <laughs> so, this is the patient. You guessed it. Professor, you see, she has strange mental quirks. Uh, Miss Allen, do you have any inhibitions, phobias, or fixation? No, but I can let you have a Chesterfield. <laughs> well, Professor, how have you been? Miss Allen, do you sleep well? Well, no, no. Last night I couldn't sleep at all. All night long there was a fly on my nose. Why didn't you brush the fly off? What for? It wasn't dusty. <laughs> this is the strangest case I've ever seen. There's only one man in this country who can cope with this case. And uh, who, who do you mean, Professor? I mean Dr. Hugo Friedlander, the world-famous psychologist. Not the Dr. Friedlander who was honored by the Medical Society last week. Yes, yes, he's the only one who can help us. I'll call him immediately. Operator. Operator. Get me Gladstone 1131. Oh, that's Skippy. Well, tell him to bring his toupee and we'll gather some more seashells. Well, that's all I want. Oh, my God.
Well, Gracie, say goodnight. Oh, good night, Sir George. I didn't know Skippy was such a great scientist. Well, sure. He once wrote a 50,000-word article on a man's spinal column. Really? How did he get in a typewriter? Good night, folks. <laughs> good night. <laughs> Join us again next week, same time, same station, for another Burns and Allen show brought to you by Hormel and Spam. This is the National Broadcasting Company. And that's The Burns and Allen Show, going back to October 14, 1940, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, Lisa, are you ready for a scary radio show? Is it Inner Sanctum? It is Inner okay, Sanctum. Then. Great mystery, terror, and suspense series that began in 1941. It was created by Hyman Brown. Now, the host for Inner Sanctum was Raymond, and that was played by Raymond Edward Johnson. I had the great pleasure of interviewing him as well. He delivered his lines in a tongue-in-cheek tone, which was in stark contrast to hosts on other shows like Suspense and The Whistler. There was this creaking door trademark, right? The studio door squeaked like crazy, and Hyman Brown said, you know what? I'm going to make this door a star. And they used that door as the door for Inner Sanctum. When you opened the Inner Sanctum, it would creak open. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. I mean, everybody loves this thing, right? Right. And then years later, Hyman Brown created the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, and he used that same sound effect. And that's I got involved in and in, interested in classic radio in the 70s. CBS Radio Mystery Theater was on every single night, Monday through Friday. And here was new time radio dramas with that squeaking door. But let's go back to the origin of that creaking, squeaking door. Here's Inner Sanctum from January 23rd, 1945. It's called Death is an Artist. Lee Bowman stars. Here's Inner Sanctum Mystery. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup presents Inner Sanctum Mysteries, starring Lee Bowman. Good evening, friends. This is your host, Raymond. Welcome to the Inner Sanctum. Come in, won't you? Uh, what are you staring at? The walls. Well, you know that old saying about walls having ears. Well, these walls have eyes. And a nice assortment of fingers and hands. One of them has a heart. But you can't beat that. Hmm. <laughs> uh... <clears throat> Don't mind me, friends. In my old age, I'm getting to be a bit of a gore. You're getting to be a crotchety old bachelor, that's what. Who said that? Oh, Mary Bennett. Hello. Uh, tell me, Mary. Do you think I should get married? You know, I used to have a girlfriend, but she threw me over. She was a vampire. 
She said I wasn't her blood type. Oh, Mr. Raymond, please, what a silly thing to say. More and more, I'm convinced that what you need is a wife. I'd just love to see the way a wife would handle you. Would you send me a wedding present, Mary? I sure would. I'd send you a big supply of Lipton's noodle soup. You know, I'll bet your wife would appreciate that. My goodness, in the old days, it took a woman all day to make a pot of noodle soup. Whereas nowadays, it only takes a jiffy. That is, when you use Lipton's noodle soup mix. But Lipton's has got the same homemade taste, believe you me. It's got the same chickeny flavor. Yes, sir, a hot plate of Lipton's noodle soup is a grand welcome home for the whole family. One whiff of that savory Lipton's noodle soup, and folks feel relaxed and ready for dinner with a rousing good appetite. Well, now, that's a very pretty picture, Mary. Which reminds me, our story tonight is about one of the fine arts, murder. <laughs> it's called Death is an Artist, an original tale by Frederick Matho. And our star is from Hollywood, Lee Bowman, soon to appear with Rita Hayworth in the Columbia Technicolor picture tonight and every night. So, curdle close to the fire and turn the lights down real low, huh? By the way, if you have a little spook or two in your home, uh, looking behind your shower curtains before turning on the water is the courteous thing to do. Otherwise, you might be dampening your spirits. <laughs> now let's get on with our story. I'm Stevie, a reporter. I'm what's called a police reporter because I hang around police stations for my stories. But tonight, I'm the best reporter in the world because I've got that kind of a story that's only given to one writer in a thousand, once in a lifetime. This story begins with the end of a man's life. Yesterday, an old man living alone with his five cats on an abandoned barge under the Brooklyn Bridge cut off the heads of four of his cats then expertly slit his own throat from ear to ear. At six o'clock on the morning we got the flash about this old man, I was playing cribbage with Mike, my police pal, at the station house squad room. Burke, the desk captain, was snoring his head off. Okay, Mike, there it is. Go, 121 points. That last run made it. Uh, you're the luckiest jerk, Stevie. We're both lucky. Not a call the whole night. I uh, sure hate to drive out to anything in this blizzard. We... Uh-oh. Place, uh, uh, 84th Precinct, Brooklyn. What? Yeah. Uh, wait, say that slower. Uh, you haven't seen him in a week. His cat's ain't around. Oh, but lady... Huh? Blood in the snow. Well, that's different, sure, sure. Yeah, okay, thanks. What's up, Captain? Uh, some dame passes an old barge down the foot of the bridge on her way to work every day. It says an old bum lives there with his cats. Uh, don't tell me I gotta rescue a cat now. No, this coot talks to her real polite every morning. But she ain't seen him in a week. Today she goes to look close like and finds blood in the snow near the door. So So we go see. We probably went south for the winter. Uh, coming along, Stevie. Yeah, but I don't like it. Burke mentioned cats, and I hate cats. And I hate people who keep cats. Well, there's a 
Use it, I guess. Come on, Stevie. Hey. Hey, look, Mike. Here's a snowman. Oh, so what? Haven't you ever seen a yeah, snowman? Yeah, but look. That's... That's not an ordinary snowman. It's a beautifully sculptured head of a woman. Made out of snow. Ah, come on. It's cold. Let's get inside this scow here. Hey, open up. Open up there. Open up inside. There is blood out here, Mike. Look. See? Here's where the woman's footprints stop. Okay, Sherlock. Help me bust this door. Oh, what's the matter with you? Look on the floor. Holy mackerel. One, two, three, four cats with their heads cut off. And another one. Alive. Hey, where are you going? I told you I can't stand them dead or alive. One of them clawed me when I was a kid. I... Stevie, get a load of this over here on the bed. He did a good job from ear to ear. He had done a good job. He was naked to the waist and his hairy torso was bathed in blood. His head lay to one side and was nearly severed at the throat. His mouth, a strangely sensitive mouth, hung foolishly open in the middle of a matted mass of beard. But it was his eyes that that stirred something inside me. They were coal-black agates that smoldered with defiance, even in death. They seemed to carry a message only I was meant to see. I turned away and stumbled over a small wooden box. It contained clay fragments. An impulse seized me, and I, I carried the box outside. What do you want that box of trash for? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I just feel I ought to take it along. Mind? Uh, just junk. These bums collect the screwiest stuff. Uh, come on, I'll drop you off at your paper. You'll get a news beat on this anyhow. Okay, Mike. Thanks. I'll call you later to see if you identify the old bird. All right, Stevie. Hey, uh, here's that box of junk. Uh, you want it? Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I wrote the item. All we could learn was that he was Ivan. No fingerprints on record, no relatives, just Ivan. So he stayed just Ivan to a quarter of a million readers and to the police. But to, to me... He was a man who had not yet died. I poked through the rubble of clay in the box, and uh, I was about to throw the whole mess out when a, a, a time-blackened metal tag caught my eye. It was the kind of tag used to mark paintings or, or statues. It read, Agatha, January 2nd, 1924. Twenty years ago, today. And below that was a name. Ivan Thorne. The name jangled a bell in my memory. It, it frightened me. It fascinated me. I rummaged in the box some more. A hunch grew to certainty. Ivan Thorne had been a sculptor. Here was a fragment of clay, a nose. Here, part of a chin. Here, an, an ear, a woman's ear. And the snow image of a woman's head came to mind. Why did Ivan Thorne, a sculptor of obvious talent... 
do ahead of a woman named Agatha in clay, then on the same date, 20 years later, as a bum, reproduce it in snow and slit his throat. I found the answer in the yellowed clippings of the newsroom morgue. The story of Ivan Thorne was filed under murders unsolved. After I'd read the story, I marched into G.C.'s office. Hey, what's up, Stevie? They study the Brooklyn Bridge again? No. You, uh, you read the item on the old guy I found with his throat cut? Sure, sure. Cut off his cat's heads, then his own. Unidentified. Good item. I... I know who he is. Was. Yeah? Story? Story. You got time to listen? Shoot. Well, this begins in a sculptor's studio off Washington Square on a stormy night long ago. Ivan Thorne and Agatha, his wife, were having words. For the last time, Agatha. Yeah. Are you really going through with this divorce foolishness? For the last time, yes. I'm tired of living from hand to mouth. I'm tired of your stupid statues. I'm tired of your stupid cats. I'm tired of you. All right. I'll give you the divorce. You can marry Greg Stevens. He'll give you everything you want. But Horace stays with me. I want custody of the boy. The court will decide that. Agatha, I've been working on that head of you for a year. It, it's good. I think the museum... Oh, that thing? It doesn't even come close to looking like me. Of course that head isn't you. It's what I remember you as when I first met you. Ivan, let go of me. You're hurting me. All right. I'll let go of you. But I'm going to finish that head, Agatha. And you're going to help me. I will not. You'll get your divorce. Only if you agree in writing to pose me one day each month for six months. I must finish it. Six months, hmm? And what about Horace? He's away at school all the time. We'll let the court decide a decent arrangement. All right, Ivan, I'll do that. Give me that pen. Here. I, Agatha Thorne, agree to pose for a sculptured head by Ivan Thorne on the first day of each month for six months. Signed, Agatha Thorne. There you are. Now, get out. Get out before I break your neck. She's gone. She's gone. But I'll see her again. Six more times. That's all I need. Six more times. This Ivan guy is working up a neat little cat astrophe. <laughs> Mr. Raymond. Uh, oh, uh, yes, Mary. I got to thinking about that snowman they found. Did you ever make a snowman? Oh, sure, and I cut off his head for a souvenir. Kept it in the icebox over the summer. And you're teasing me, Mr. Raymond. Uh, Mary. 
Yes, Mr. Raymond. Uh, Mr. Bowman is waiting to resume his part of the young police reporter, Stevie. That's right. Uh, you remember, Stevie told his editor that Ivan was divorced by his wife, Agatha, 20 years ago. And how the events that followed turned the sculptor into the tired old bum he was when he slit his throat under the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, Stevie, did Agatha get her divorce? Yes, and the court gave her custody of their six-year-old kid, Horace. Hmm. She married Greg Stevens, and according to these clippings, she kept her agreement with Thorne. She posed for the head he was doing over so that he could finish it. The first day of each month for six months, huh? Yeah. Hmm. How'd he take the divorce and losing his kid and all? Beautifully. So everybody thought. It got to be the talk of the town. The three of them, Agatha, Greg, and Ivan, seemed to get along fine together. The Stevenses were frequent callers at Thorne's studio. Oh, I say, Thorne, why won't you show me the head you're making of Agatha? It isn't fair, you know. Not till it's finished, Greg. You wouldn't appreciate it as it is now. It really is good, Ivan. When will you finish it? Yes, Ivan, when? I want to finish it on New Year's Day. That will be the last time you need pose, Agatha. Can you make it that day? Well... I'll just have to, won't I? Yes. At three o'clock? At three o'clock. Come on, Greg, darling. Good night, Ivan. Good night, Ivan. My goodness, six months goes by so fast, doesn't it? Six months. I gave them six months. One day it's over. One day is the last day she poses for me. One day I'll finish that head. I love her. And for six months, six centuries, she belonged to that idiot. He took my son from me. You can't hear me, Agatha. Can you? This is you and Clay. You can't hear me. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's wonderful that I haven't thought of such a good sport about it. I fooled them all. I fooled you. Yes. <laughs> then uh, he really was out of his mind, Stevie, the Ivan guy. Sure. But with a madman's cunning, he disguised it well at that point. Only his cats knew it, I guess. New Year's Day, 1924, was a howling wintry day. Neighbors later testified to seeing Ivan's massive frame, coat flailing open in the wind, eyes staring, unblinking, as he turned into his building. It was the last time they saw him. In his studio, Ivan kicked his door shut and began talking to Agatha's statue, as he'd gotten into the habit of doing now for some time. I'll set the table by the fire, Agatha, just as we always did. You like that. And I'll set a place for little Horace. Oh, I know you don't want him to come here, but we'll just make believe, huh? Agatha, I must, must pull myself together. Happy New Year, Agatha. Come in, come in. And the same to you, Ivan. Oh, let me get to that fire quickly. I'm frozen up. Why are you bolting the door? The draft rattles the door. Here, give me a coat. Now, how about a bite? By the fire? Why, Ivan. 
How quaint. Just like old times, hmm? This is the last time you'll come to pose. Have you minded living up to our agreement? No, Ivan. You've been very decent about it. But tell me, why are you so set on finishing the head you're doing of me? Have you ever seen a human skull, Agatha? Ugly thing. Long after that pretty head of yours becomes a skull, the head I'm making of you will live in ageless bronze. That's why I'm so anxious to finish this work. I see. Well, shall we start, Ivan? Ivan, you're not working. You're just staring at me. I'm studying the line of your neck, darling. It eludes me. Well, hurry, please. I've sat here for two hours now. I'm tired. I'll be finished soon. Then you can rest, darling. Then you can rest. Ivan, you... You're looking at me as though you... Ivan! You've moved your head again, darling. Here, let me show you. There. So. Just like this. Don't move, Agatha. My fingers are loose on your throat. But in a split second, I can sink them into you tight. Like this. Don't. I've loved you more in these few months. You've been away from me than I ever did before. I'll always love you. But if I can't have you, no one else can. Ivan, you're mad. You can't do this. I'll give you six months with that fool. Because I wasn't sure. I thought I could get over losing you and the boy. But I... I can't. We all thought you were... Resigned. <laughs> no. Even now, I don't know if I want to kill you, Agatha. I... I'm not sure. No. No, you don't. You know you don't. Think of heart. You son. I am thinking Think... of your little fool. Oh, Greg. Greg, help me. Greg. Greg. You've got the nerve to speak his name here. Now. Now. You're on Gregory. I did it. But you, you made me do it. How beautiful you are. Dead. Look at this clay head. Agatha, see, I was wrong. You're much more beautiful. I've changed my mind. I don't want fame. I don't want a statue. I want you. See, Agatha, I've broken it, smashed it. It's Greg Stevens who should die. He did all this to us. I'll... Yes. I'll go see Greg. That's it. But I must be careful now. I must make Greg suffer. Oh. Oh. Why haven't you? Yes. He must know that he too has lost Agatha. Well, that's some yarn, Stevie. 
He actually strangled Agatha, huh? What happened then? He left his studio and called at the Stevens' house a little after six. Greg Stevens and young Horace were the only ones there, except for the butler. He testified that Ivan quietly asked to see Stevens alone. He had a bundle in his arms, covered with a piece of black velvet, when Gregory greeted him. Ivan, well, glad to see you and Happy New Year to you. But where's Agatha? She was supposed to be with you. She'll turn up shortly. Said something about a girlfriend she had to stop by for. Oh, I see. Well, come on in, Ivan. We can have a glass of sherry while we wait. Thanks. Uh, put your package down somewhere on the table here. Thank you. Uh, did you, um, did you get a lot done today on the head, I mean? Hmm? Yes. I've, uh, finished it. Oh, good. Say, that wouldn't be it in that box, would it? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Well, good heavens, man, let me see it. I've been kept from all this long enough now that it's finished. I'd love... Till Agatha gets here. I'm going away for a while, Stevens. Before I go, I want you to tell me something. Do you love Agatha? A lot, I mean. A lot? I worship her. I adore her. You know what you did to me when you took Agatha and my boy from me? Well, the choice was hers. I'm glad for my sake. I'm sorry for you. But I thought you were resigned by now. Resigned? You poor fool. I've lived a life of raging hate for you. Ivan, sit down. You don't have to be sorry for me anymore, Greg. You can start feeling sorry for yourself. Thorne, what are you driving at? Everything comes out even, Greg. Come over here. What's in that box? Come closer, Greg. Here. I'll take the cloth off. See for yourself. Agatha. You... You fiend. You beast, I'll kill you. <laughs> Hates, doesn't it, Greg? Hates to lose, Agatha. <laughs> doesn't it? I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Oh, you won't. Get away from me. You won't kill me. I won't kill you. We'll both live to remember. Thorne didn't kill Stevens? No, G.C. He knocked him out. They found his footprints in the snow along with the kids. He must have stopped to say goodbye. What a story. He slit his throat this morning as a bum on a barge. Yeah. Took his cats with him. The clay fragments I found in that box on the barge were all that was left of the clay head of Agatha. Nobody even found out how he got away or managed to stay hidden for 20 years? No. That's his secret. Well, write it up, stupid. I can't. I won't, G.C. You can't print that story. The devil, I can't. Where's this Greg Stevens? Where's Horace, the kid? Find him. Greg Stevens died penniless and insane a year later. His kid was raised in an orphan asylum. Well, find the kid. Now, let's see. He'd be about uh, 26 today. Maybe he doesn't know any of these things. What a scoop. Get busy. Look, you can't print this story. Why do you think I didn't write it up and hand it in? I feel sorry for the kid. I was raised in an asylum. A story's a story. What do I have to do? Draw you a diagram, G.C.? Why do you call me Stevie? Well, because your name is Stevens, I guess. And, uh... Good heavens. You don't mean... Yes, my name is Stevens. I never use my first name. I don't like it. It's Horace. That's right. You're Horace Stevens. Yes. My father was Ivan Thorne. 
Take his modeling away from him. Might grow up to be a bust. <clears throat> That's enough to give anybody the creeps. It certainly is, Mr. Raymond. Uh, oh, Mary Bennett. Say, didn't you like our story tonight? Well, it was exciting, all right. But why don't you tell stories about normal, happy people? Of course, folks like that never get murdered or anything, but interesting things happen to them. Nice things, too. Like discovering Lipton's noodle soup, huh, Mary? Well, why not? Lipton's noodle soup is a good way to brighten up a meal, and good meals are a mighty important part of life. So, folks, maybe you've tried other envelope soups, but if you've never tried Lipton's noodle soup, you've got something real nice ahead of you, because Lipton's is the favorite noodle soup of them all. Our moral for tonight is don't drive alone. If you have a car, lucky you, form a carpool. Then, if you should have a flat tire, you'll be among friends on that cold, cold highway. Fun, huh? <laughs> And uh, Uncle Sam says join a carpool, too. He's not kidding. He says your carpool will help save gas and tires, so look to it, Max. Uh, yes, the, um, this month's Inner Sanctum Mystery Novel is Net of Cobwebs by Elizabeth Sanksay Holding. Oh, yes, and you won't forget to look for Lee Bowman with Rita Hayworth and the Columbia Technicolor picture tonight and every night. Well, now it's time to uh, say goodnight until next week at the same time when Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup again present another Inner Sanctum Mystery... Directed by Hyman Brown. Good night. Pleasant dreams. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's Inner Sanctum Mystery from January 23rd, 1945. Death is an Artist. That was sponsored by Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup. And it starred Lee Bowman, who was a movie star back in this time. So they you know, were able to get a movie star to appear on the radio show. Raymond Edward Johnson playing the macabre host, Raymond. Very, very good episode is heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio theater. Hey, Lisa, I want to remind everyone listening about the Classic Radio Club. Folks, if you want 10 classic radio shows, and I'm talking about the best quality, most interesting radio shows each and every month that I hand select from my 100,000 plus classic radio shows, we put them in the Classic Radio Club. Now, you can have five CDs sent to you with all 10 shows, along with liner notes, sent to your home, a nice collection of CDs, or you can get these same 10 shows 
email to you right to your email. You can listen to them on any listening device. Join the Classic Radio Club. Now, we have a special introductory offer. It's only $1 the first month to join. So you can check it out. If you don't like it, just cancel. You'll never have to pay again. But you'll get these 10 shows sent to you each and every month. I think you'll love it. We have hundreds and hundreds of your fellow listeners are members of the Classic Radio Club. Why don't you give it a try? Go to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. In our next hour, it's Tales of the Texas Rangers starring Joel McRae, plus part one of the Abbott and Costello show from 1943. That's coming your way right after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa Wolf and I are here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, five hours, where we present eight classic radio shows for you each and every week. Thanks to this great radio station, WGN, and thanks to you out there in Radio Land for being there. We wouldn't want to do this if we didn't have so many listeners enjoying these shows. That's right, right. and we love the feedback, and we love hearing from our listeners, so that makes it all worthwhile, for absolutely, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And these are times where we have to stay safe, we have to wear our masks, I love my Veronica M. mask. I wear it all the time. I wear my mask from Veronica M. all the time, too. And here's the story. Veronica Ferrer is the founder of this L.A.-based brand called Veronica M. And she is known for her quality and her fit. She sourced some great fabrics and soft elastics. She makes everything here in the USA, and she takes pride in every mask that she sends out. And what she does is she makes the mask with two layers of stretched cotton fabric with a fused lining in the center for extra protection. They are machine washable. They are soft. They are very attractive. As a matter of fact, I just ordered another set of masks. It's called Sherbet Tie-Dye. And I just uh, posted a picture of my family and I wearing these masks. You can go to our social media, check out that photo. Great mask. The best there is. Five masks, $35. That's a great price. And you know what? You're so fashionable. This is perfect for you. It's perfect Mine is for- just black. <laughs> I just wear a black one, but well, it's great and it's super comfortable. There are a lot of options for you as well. There's camo and stripes and salads, whatever you like. She's personally trimming and packaging these masks, shipping them out every single day. Check it out. Go to her website. It's veronicam.shop. Follow her on Instagram at Veronica M Clothing. All right. When we come back from this break, it's Tales of the Texas Rangers plus part one of Abbott and Costello. See you in a few. Hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. Don't forget, folks, there are five classic radio shows waiting for you to digitally download absolutely free. These are five shows we've put on our website so that our listeners can go to our website and get these shows as a thank you for listening to this radio program. Now, Lisa, what are the five shows again? We have Jack Benny, Fibber McGee and Molly, Suspense, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, and Gunsmoke. Five great shows. Yep, all digitally remastered. And just go to our website, 100radioshows.com. That's the number 100radioshows.com. And when you're at that site getting your free shows, make sure you peruse the 700 additional classic radio shows available for purchase at that site. Now, if you decide to buy any of those shows, make sure you use the promo code RADIO at checkout because you will save 70% 
on your order. That promo code is worth a 70% discount. Go to 100radioshows.com. All right. Are you ready for Tales of the Texas Rangers? The interesting thing about Tales of the Texas Rangers was it was a modern Western series slash detective series. Now, the star of this series was Joel McRae. He played Ranger Jace Pearson, and he solved present-day crimes in the West. He was a Texas Ranger. Now, the Texas Rangers are the oldest law enforcement agency in the United States. And Stacy Keach Sr. created this series beginning in 1950. It ran until 1952. Joel McRae, of course, was a big movie star at the time. He was a Western star, did a lot of Westerns, but he did romance and other kind of shows. And they were able to get Joel McRae to star as Ranger Jace Pearson. It was a very popular series. It did make a trend transition to television, but we have a radio broadcast for you now from May 27, 1951, called Joyride. Here's Joel McRae, uninterrupted. We'll tune in now to Tales of the Texas Rangers. The National Broadcasting Company presents Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of the Texas Rangers. Tales of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Texas, more than 260,000 square miles. And 50 men who make up the most famous and oldest law enforcement body in North America. files of the Texas Rangers come these stories based on fact. Only names, dates, and places are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. Case for tonight, Joyride. It is 9.40 p.m. December 3rd, 1946. The small town of Purdy, Texas, is quiet and ready for sleep as a car turns off the state highway and into the main street. At the wheel of the car is a pimply-faced youth. Beside him, a young girl. That car still behind us? No, I kept right on the highway. What are you so jumpy about? The way he was tagging us, I thought it might be the highway patrol. You are getting chicken, ain't you, Chuck? I ain't fixing to go back to no reform school, that's all. Oh, stop worrying. This car ain't even reported stolen yet. You saw the owner go into the movie, didn't you? Okay, Ruby, okay. Fine joyride. Thought we was gonna have fun. Ain't even got anything to drink. I ain't got any money! Didn't have no car either when we started. Ain't like you used to be, Chuck. We used to have lots of fun. Till you turn yellow. Don't you go calling me that. I I ain't got a gun, that's all. I got one, Chuck, right here in my purse. Where'd you get it? I lifted it from my old man. What difference does it make where I got it, long as I got it? The liquor store up ahead, Chuck. See the sign? I see it. Can hardly have a joyride without something to drink. It's late. They roll up the sidewalks in a town like this. The place must be closed. If it was closed, sign wouldn't be late. Gonna stop, or ain't you? Sure, I'm gonna stop. See? 
storekeeper still there. And seen through the window. Counting up money from his cash register. Could have a real party with something to drink and some money. Stay here. Keep the motor running. Give me the gun. No, I'm going to come in with you. I can handle the gun. You crazy? You suppose he's got a gun, too? Look, he's an old man. He wouldn't dare do nothing. Come on, Chuck. We can't just sit here. You better not get rattled. Look who's talking. You're coming, or ain't you? All right, I'm coming. But be careful. I always wanted to do something like this. Shut up. Oh, howdy. 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 Well, we're just fixing to close. Heard your car pull up outside. I thought it was my old lady coming to get me. Uh, what can I do for you? I'd like a fifth of that bonded bourbon. Oh, you would, eh? How old are you, son? Twenty-one. Nineteen would be closer, wouldn't it? Maybe a year less than that for your lady friend here. I said I was twenty-one. All right, boy. We'll say you're twenty-one. And we'll also say that I'm closed for the night. Now you can just run along. We ain't running any place, mister. Now you just get... What? Where'd you get that gun? I made it out of old bottle top, stupid. He told you what we want. On the top shelf. Get up on the stool and get it. All right. Just don't... Don't get nervous with that thing. Get the money out of the register, Chuck. Yeah, the money. You ain't going to be happy about this. When you see the inside of a jail. Thanks for telling us. Because here's something you ain't going to be happy about. No! No! Ruby! Ruby, you killed him! I know, Chuck, I know. Come on, come on, we got to get out of here. No, we're not what we come for. Grab a couple of bottles. Ruby, are you crazy? (laughs) You're afraid, ain't you, Chuck? Get the bottles. All right, all right. (laughs) Now, let's go, let's go. Come on. The body of Malcolm Barnes, proprietor of the liquor store, was discovered by his wife less than five minutes after the killing. Sheriff Frank Corcoran was summoned. He immediately phoned for the help of a Texas ranger. Ranger Jace Pearson was assigned, arriving at the scene of the crime at 1 a.m., Coming through, folks. Howdy, Frank. Oh, howdy, Jace. Was hoping they'd send you. Here's a body. He the owner of the store? Yeah, Malcolm Barnes. Wife found him just like he is at about 10 or 10. Usually closed just before 10. She'd always come pick him up in their car. Doc figured it couldn't have happened more than just a few minutes before she got here. Where's the doc? Drove over to see about the funeral parlor. Body will be taken there for autopsy when we finish. I've had everything photographed. Cash register's been rifled. Uh-huh. Hmm. Shot through the back three times. So watch out for that broken glass. Yeah, I'm watching. Place sure smells with all the bottles smashed. Alcohol dries up fast. Yeah, left big stain rings, though. Puddled right out to here before it dried out. Any of your deputies or anybody pick up any of those bottles that are cracked or broken? No, I got here right after Mrs. Barnes. Nobody's touched a thing. Why? Well, floor is spotted past those stain marks. 
Look toward the door, a string of small spots. Mm. Like something been carried that way, dripping. Jase, I was careful to see that nothing was touched, that nobody stepped in where the liquor had been spilled. Well, the spots might be a break for us, then, because somebody carried a bottle out of here. It must have been cracked and leaking. You mean the killer might have grabbed it up? That's right. If it marked this floor, it'd mark the walk outside, too. Come on, let's take a look. Spots run right to the door, all right. Lucky I told the deputies to keep everybody off the side of the place. Yeah, careful where you step. I want to run a flashlight along the sidewalk here. It's been mighty dry around here, Jace. Dust surface on the ground. That'll help us. Yeah. It's here, all right. Look, mm. little craters in the dust, dried out hollow. Yeah. They only go a few feet. Marks end right here at the curb. Well, that tells us something. Whoever was carrying that bottle got into a car. They weren't on foot. Tire tracks aren't going to help us. Mess of them all around from cars driving in and out. I wish our killer had been on foot, Frank. Why? That'd point to somebody who came from close by. Somebody in the town. Car doesn't rule that out. No, but it sure broadens the field. I'm going to call Austin and have a lab crew sent in. If we're lucky, they might lift a fingerprint or something for us to work on. That's a good idea. Phone in the store. Over there. Uh-huh. You got anything in mind for us while we're waiting? Yeah. After I call Austin, I want to check with local officers in every town around here. I'm pretty sure the killer took liquor, and if he took it, he's going to drink it. We'll check on every case of drunk driving that turns up tonight in this county. Lights burned in the liquor store all through the night as the lab crew checked. Meanwhile, the sheriff and I covered more than 200 miles by car, investigating drunk driving cases reported by local constables and highway patrolmen. The sun's coming up, Jason. We sure spent the night running into blind alleys. None of those drivers we saw could have been anywhere near Purdy at the time of the killing. Well, our alibi's all checked out. Maybe the lab crew will have a lead for us when we get back to the liquor store. Didn't you get some kind of report on the shortwave before while I was dozing? I kind of remember you talking. Yeah. An order to phone headquarters for a ballistic report. Barnes was killed by a 38 police special. Well, that's our first lead. We need more than that before we ADXA, can... KTXA to Unit 10. Yeah, that's us. KTXA to Unit 10. Unit 10 to KTXA. Go ahead. Highway Patrol Unit 109 requests Unit 10 to proceed to junction of Ranch Road 23 and State Highway 19 west of Bartonville to examine stolen car recovered at that point. 10-4. Does Unit 109 think stolen vehicle may have connection with this unit's current investigation of murder? Unit 109 reports liquor bottles found in abandoned vehicle. 10-4. Unit 10 heading for rendezvous with 109 immediately. We'll keep you informed. 10-4. Unit 10, clear. KDXA, Austin. Hold tight, Frank. Got to swing around. Let's hope this is a break. Better be. We need one. Highway Patrol Unit 109 was Tommy Manuelo's unit. We spotted his car and he flagged us down near the junction of the ranch road. The stolen car he'd located was parked off the road in a small grove of trees. I found it just before sunup, Chase. I was making the turn off, my headlights reflected on the chrome. Just barely saw it. Then when I checked the license number, it was on my hot car sheet. Number came over by shortwave last night. Now, what time last night this car was reported stolen? I got the flash a little after 11 o'clock. Barnes was killed before 10. I know, but this car could have been missing from 8 o'clock on. 
Owner went to a picture show about that, and car was gone when he came out. Where was the car taken from, Tommy? Bardenville. Only four miles from here on the state. About 60 miles from here to Purdy, Jase. Yeah, but if the car was taken at 8 o'clock or a little after, the thief had plenty of time to drive to Purdy before 10 o'clock. KTXA said you found some liquor bottles in the car, Tommy. Yeah, that's right. I'll show you. Hmm. There you are. Empty fifth on the floor in the front seat, and there's one half empty there in the back. I'll open the back door. Hmm. Government tax seal on that bottle isn't even broken. No. I didn't notice, eh? Oh, how could they empty half of it without breaking the seal and pulling the cork? The bottle must be cracked. Staying around it on the floor, mat where it's been leaking. This is what we've been looking for, Jason. Yeah. Pick the bottle up, Frank. Don't touch the glass. Lift it with your fingers pinched around the tack stamp. Right. <laughs> Grip's all right. Chip out of the bottom. Wonder why it didn't all empty out. Well, would have the bottle been standing up instead of lying flat. It emptied down until the liquor was even with the place the bottle was cracked. And it couldn't run anymore until you picked it up. Might get some prints off of it or maybe the empty bottle in the front seat. We can try. It's a cinch we're not going to get any from the steering wheel. No, I, I noticed that right away. Uh, not with the cloth cover on the wheel. Might get something from the dashboard or the inner door handles, but well, I don't know. Not often you pick up good prints on a car. <laughs> There's a piece of cleansing tissue on the floor there. Here. Looks like lipstick stain on it. That's what it is. Another little thing on the floor mat here. Ah, gold bobby pin. Yeah. Lipstick is kind of a light shade. Could have been a woman in this too, Jace. Mm. Probably a blonde. Of course, that bobby pin and a tissue might have come from the owner's wife or his girl. Oh, I doubt that, sir. How come, Tommy? Well, owner of the car is a colored man, Jace. In just a moment... We will continue with Tales of the Texas Rangers, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. In a short while, Theater Guild on the Air brings to radio listeners a delightful adaptation of Ring Lardner's famous comedy of the baseball world, Elmer the Great. Starring in the title role will be Hollywood favorite Paul Douglas, as a pitcher whose skill on the baseball diamond is exceeded only by his good nature and ability to attract trouble. That's later today for Elmer the Great, starring Paul Douglas, presented by Theater Guild on the Air. We continue now with Tales of the Texas Rangers and tonight's case, Joyride, an authentic story from the files of the Texas Rangers. <laughs> I put out a call for the lab crew to meet us at the stolen car when they finished checking the liquor store at Purdy. They joined us within two hours. Nothing had been found at the store that would help us, and it didn't take long to realize that we weren't going to get any evidence from the car or the bottles either. Doesn't look like they're going to find anything, Jason. Yeah, they don't. Won't be their fault. No point in our hanging around here. Want to drive back to Purdy now? I think we'd do better if we drove into Bartonville. Because the car... It was stolen from Bartonville, then brought back here to a spot only four miles away from where it was taken. Figures that whoever stole it must live nearby, or the car would have been left someplace else. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Let's try, Bartonville. Good. We're going to leave you, fellas. If you find anything, let us know by short wave. Right. Go along. Go along. You going to try to run down that lipstick and bobby pin? Gave Tommy Manuelo the tissue with the lipstick smear. It's been sent through to Austin. They've established the lipstick brand by chemical analysis. 
They'll also check on the manufacturer, the bobby pin. Think it'll take long to get a report? No, not long. Tommy may have it by the time we get into town. He'll be at the courthouse. You got a plan mapped out? Yeah, won't be too many places handling lipstick and bobby pins. We get the brand names, Tommy and I can check the stores and see if sales girls remember any women who use that shade of lipstick or the pins. <laughs> what do I do? Check into the hotel and get some sleep? <laughs> no. We got one more thing to look for. The gun that killed Barnes. Check with a constable and get a list of anybody he knows who might own a thirty-eight police special. Yeah, that might uncover something. May have some records of people who've had guns like that being picked up on minor charges in the past. It's worth checking. We match the bullet that killed Barnes, and we can make some work for a 12-man jury. Tommy Manuelo had the information on the lipstick and bobby pin examined by the Austin lab. We started a check of drugstores and general merchandise outlets that carried the items. We couldn't get any concrete information from sales girls or clerks. Well, another drugstore on the next corner, Jase. Oh. You know, some of these sales clerks don't seem to have very long memories. You can't blame them. Things we're tracing are both cheap items. Girl on her feet all day gets so she can't remember much except bunions. <laughs> I guess you're right. Well, I sure hope the sheriff is doing better than we are. I hope so, too. Hey, Jase, Tommy, wait up. Hold it, Tommy. Here comes Frank now. Yeah. I've been tracking you for 20 minutes. You finished checking already? Yeah. And I come across something I think we ought to look into right away, Jace. There's a fellow named Jim Hammer filed a report with a constable last night, just before midnight. Said a gun had been stolen from his house, 38 police special. Hey, isn't that what Barnes was killed with, Jace? Yeah. Get any information on this Jim Hammer? Yeah, sure did. He's night watchman around the cattle pens over to the auction barn. Told the constable he'd missed a gun when he was getting ready to go to work last night. Couldn't find it in the drawer he keeps it in. You get Hammer's address? Yeah, 214 North Spruce. Tommy, you keep checking the stores. We'll meet you at the courthouse later. Right, Jase. All right, Frank. I left my car on Main Street. Let's go. Yeah? I'd like to talk to Jim Hammer. He ain't home. You know where we can find him? Over to the auction barn, maybe. I thought he was the night watchman over there. Yeah, he goes there during the day sometimes when there's a sale. There was auctioning this afternoon. You look kind of young. You're not his wife, are you? No, I'm his daughter. Ruby Hammer. It's after five o'clock, Jase. Auction probably be over by now. Yeah. You expect your father to come home to eat? No, he'll probably spend some time chinning around the barn. And maybe get himself some grub in town and go right to work. I see. I guess we might as well go over at the auction barn, Frank. Hmm. What do you want to see my father about? Is it something about some stolen cattle or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Thanks, miss. Bye. Bye, Ruby. Bye. If you miss my father, I'll tell him you were here. Thanks. Where's the auction barn? West end of town. Jim Hammer wasn't hard to find. He was pointed out to us talking to cattlemen who'd bought stock at the auction and were waiting for a chance to load their purchases on their trucks at the end of a chute. We called him off to the side. Well, Sheriff Ranger, what can I do for you? Constable says you had a gun stolen from your home last night. Oh, that gun wasn't stolen at all. Huh? I just didn't look sharp enough last night. 
Found it this afternoon, but in a different drawer from where I usually keep it. Is that the gun you're carrying right there in your holster? Yeah. You mean to say you just took a look in one drawer last night before coming to work and reported that gun stolen without being sure? Well, I was sure last night. I reckon I just overlooked it, that's all. It's pretty hard to overlook a thirty-eight police special. You couldn't have looked very hard. Well, I all but emptied the bureau out. I was in a hurry to get to work. I guess I just plain missed it, that's all. Ain't no reason for you to jump on a man. You reported to the constable when you thought the gun was missing. Now, how come you didn't let him know you'd found it? Well, I suppose I should have. I didn't think it was no rush. Besides, what's the harm? It's my gun, ain't it? Let's have it. Well, sure, I... Don't you pull it. Just turn around. I'll take it myself. Hey, what... He said turn around. Okay. Okay. When did you fire this gun last, Hammer? I can't even remember the last time. Ain't had no call to fire it. Haven't, huh? Smell this, Frank. It's been used all right, not long ago. You're crazy, I tell you. I ain't fired that gun in months. Somebody has. You better come with us. Come where with you? To the courthouse, Hammer, until we check on a few things. Check on what? A liquor store owner named Barnes was killed last night in Purdy. Shot three times through the back by a thirty-eight police special. Are you trying to frame me for something? I was nowhere near Purdy last night. We know you filed a report with the constable around midnight, Hammer. But where were you between 9 and 11 o'clock last night? I was home, sleeping. My daughter can tell you that. I... My... Well, go ahead, Hammer. What are you stopping for? My, my daughter wasn't home. I just remember she... she went out about 7 o'clock. And nobody saw you during those hours, huh? No, nobody. But I was home, I tell you. you got to believe me. That gun ain't been fired. If we're wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. Come on. Well, have to get that gun to your lab, Jace. Regular flight to Austin goes out in about 45 minutes. Good. Boys in ballistics can test fire it and check the slug with the ones taken out of Barnes. If this is the murder weapon, they'll tell us. I tell you, it can't be. Our lab doesn't make any mistakes, Hammer. If you're telling the truth, there's a little test you can volunteer to take. We have a lab crew working nearby right now. I'll give you a diphenylman test. Uh, what's that? Just a matter of pouring a chemically treated wax on your hand. Uh, when they peel it off, it'll show traces of nitrate if you fired a gun recently. I uh, haven't, I tell you. I heard you. Now I'd like to hear it from a lab man, just to be sure. We got the gun on the night plane to Austin. The stolen car had been brought into a garage in town. We waited for the lab crew to finish with it and then had one of the men go to work on Hammer's hands. By 10 p.m., we had the answers. Two answers that didn't fit each other. What are you keeping me here for, Ranger? You heard what the lab man said. My hands are clean. Wasn't no nitrate on them. That doesn't settle everything, Hammer. While he had you in the next room going over your hands, I had a phone report from Austin on your gun. You'd better talk up, Hammer. Your gun's been identified as a murder weapon. That's a lie! You weren't in bed at 10 o'clock last night. You and Purdy driving a stolen car, and there was a woman with you. That ain't so, I tell you. You run around with any blonde women? The only blonde woman I ever run around with was my wife. She died six years ago. That gun was missing from my house last night. Somebody must have taken it, then put it back again. Oh, sure. My hands was clean, wasn't they? Howdy, Jace. Sheriff? Oh, Tommy, I almost forgot about you. you. find anything, Tommy? I think so. This five and dime store was closed when I got to it, but I got the address of the woman who works the cosmetic counter. Went out to see her. They handle the lipstick and pins we've been checking on. She gave me the names of a few women that she remembers who buy both. Here's a list. We'll read off the name of Jace. Maybe if Hammer's girlfriend is listed, he'll admit he knows her. There's one name on here he'll admit to knowing all right. That's what you think. That's what I know. It's your daughter, Ruby Hammer. 
Sheriff and I drove Hammer back to his house, but Ruby wasn't there. We waited around, looking through the house. First she tried to put it on to me, and now it's my daughter. Are you crazy? She's only 18 years old. Was she with you last night? No, she was out on a date. With who? Well, how should I know? All I know is she wouldn't get into no trouble like this. I've heard that same speech in a hundred courtrooms, Hammer. Jase, come here a minute. Yeah? What is it? Girl's coat in this closet. Smell. Hmm. You keep any liquor in the house, Hammer? No, never. There's something else, Jase. Photograph. Yeah. Hammer's daughter and some boy. Let me see that again. I know this kid, the boy. I sent him to reform school three years ago. His name's Chuck Allenby. What was the charge against him? Something that fits this case like a glove. Automobile theft. And my daughter wouldn't go out with nobody like that. Of course not, Hammer. She just got a habit of posing for pictures with people she wouldn't go out with. I'm going to get my car out of sight, Frank, and we'll sit down and wait for Ruby's date to bring her home. <laughs> After midnight. I think you're at work, Hammer. They may come in, so keep quiet, hear me? You hear me? Yeah. I hear you. They're coming. Yeah, quiet. I have to come into the hall. They won't see us in the living room with the lights off. I can't see nothing. We'll switch on the light. You ain't staying long enough to need the light. Get all you up and stay. Now, what's the matter with you? What's the good of having money if you ain't gonna spend any of it? Spend it? But wait a while. Got a job. I start spending money and people are going to wonder where I got it. All right. While you're waiting, don't expect me to wait. I can go out with somebody else, you know, somebody who's got a car every night or who ain't afraid to get. Ruby! Ruby, shut up! Don't move anybody. That means you, Chuck. Let go of that door. What are they doing here, Paul? They're after him. The thief. You stay out of this, Hammer. Couldn't stay out of trouble, could you, Chuck? I didn't do nothing, Sheriff. I... Let me go. Hold still. That's quite a roll of bills you had in your pocket, boy. I, I found that money. Where? In the cash register over in Purdy, after you killed an old man? So that's why you wanted my father's gun. What? What are you... Kill him, Ruby. If he had my gun, you'd kill him. Last night, he wanted to borrow it just for fun, he said. And then he stole a car and made me go with him over to Purdy. He left me parked someplace and walked away. And then after a while, he come back with some whiskey. I didn't drink none of it. But he did. She's lying. You keep quiet. You say he didn't park near the store? No. He walked from where he left me. I don't even know what he done. You're lying, Ruby. When the old man was killed, whoever gunned him ran out of the store with a dripping bottle and got into a car not more than ten feet from the entrance. And I didn't shoot him. She did. He's lying. Ruby's only a little girl. You can prove he's lying. Give him the same test you give me on his hands. What kind of test? With a poor wax on your hands. You can tell if you fired a gun. <laughs> Ruby, come back here. Hold still, Chuck. Get away from that stove, Ruby. No, Ruby, don't. Come away from there. Oh, Ruby. Ruby, why'd you do it, Ruby? What'd you do it for? Better save that hammer. If you got any butter, get it fast. Yeah. No sudden move, Chuck. I won't try nothing. What'd you do, Jason? Ran into the kitchen here and pulled the lid off the cook stove and jammed her hand into the hot coals. Here's the butter, Ranger. Here's the butter. Thanks. Oh, Ruby. I can fix that burn a little with this, Ruby. Doc can fix it for you better later on at the jail.
Chuck Allenby and Ruby Hammer were found guilty of the murder of storekeeper Barnes. Allenby, who turned state's witness, was sentenced to a 30-year term at Huntsville. Ruby Hammer pulled 50 years in the women's prison at Gory. And now, here again, is the star of our show, Joel McRae. Folks, tonight marks the concluding performance, for a while at least, of Tales of the Texas Rangers. We've really enjoyed bringing these stories to you and hope that someday we'll be back with you again. To NBC and its affiliated stations, to Colonel Homer Garrison, Jr., Chief of the Texas Rangers, to Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez, our technical advisor, and to all the Texas Rangers and members of the Department of Public Safety, our grateful thanks. And we're particularly grateful to those of you who've taken the time to send us your cards and letters. After all, they are the only sure way of telling that you liked our show. Thanks, folks. Thanks a lot. Good night. You have just heard Joel McRae in another authentic reenactment of a case from the files of The Texas Rangers. Joel McRae will soon be seen starring in the Universal International Technicolor production, Cattle Drive. Tonight's case included Tony Barrett, Sam Edwards, Peggy Weber, John Frank, Barney Phillips, and Bill Johnstone. This story was transcribed and adapted by Joel Murcott, and the program was produced and directed by Stacy Peach. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Douglas and Theater Guild, next on NBC. And that's Tales of the Texas Rangers from May 27, 1951, with Joy Ride that starred Joel McCray also in that cast, Tony Barrett, Sam Edwards, William Johnstone, and our good pal Peggy Weber that was sustained over NBC. Okay, time now for one of the funniest radio series of all time, Abbott and Costello. Of course, they gained great fame with their comedy routine, The Who's On First, but they had a radio series, then a television series. They made some of the most successful films for Universal. I mean, you know, the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein movie saved Universal Pictures from bankruptcy. There would be no Universal Pictures today were it not for Abbott and Costello. We have a radio broadcast going back to December 16th, 1943, their special guest is Lynn Barry. Here's part one of the Abbott and Costello show.
Abbott and Costello program. Tonight's special guest, star of the 20th Century Fox picture, Tampico, Miss Lynn Barry, and starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Boy, oh boy. What's the matter? Hey, Abbott, come on, come on. Help me get dressed, please. I've got to get to the broadcast right away. Take it easy. There's lots of time. What's the excitement? Excitement? Tonight we're having Lynn Barry as our guest star, and I'm going to make love to her. Boy, oh boy. All right. See, if I'm late, she might walk out of me. So what? Let her walk out. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Yeah, but who wants to park in the dark with a shark? Oh. <laughs> Never mind. Come on. Get your clothes on and let's go. Okay, now, kid. Hey, listen, Abbott. I'm waiting for my new suit. Boy, it's going to be beautiful. It is? The most gorgeous suit you ever saw. Is that right? Yeah, the coat is red with green stripes. It's got pink lapels and orange buttons. Wait a minute. A red coat with green stripes, pink lapels, and orange buttons? Yeah. I suppose you're going to wear yellow pants? What? And have people stare at me? Oh. <laughs> what do you think I am, Abbott? A dope? Uh, yellow pants. Yeah. They clash with my purple shoes. The purple shoes? <laughs> Certainly, I never heard of such a thing. Yellow pants. All right, all right. Drop the pants. I can't. Why not? <laughs> my red underwear won't match my lavender vest. They are. <laughs> Look, now, don't be ridiculous. I wouldn't let you meet Lynn Barry in clothes like that. You'd better wear one of my suits. Hey, here, I'll lend you my uh, dress suit. That old thing, it's full of moth holes. Oh, there isn't a single moth in that suit. You said it. They're all married and got children. Now, nah, wait a minute. <laughs> Just a minute. We don't have any moths in our clothes closet. No moths, eh? No. Just open that closet door and see. Okay, I will. No moths, eh? All right, so there's one. One! That was the mother. Here comes the children. <laughs> that last one was just hatched. That's a brand new baby moth. All right, forget about the moths. Here, look. I'll lend you one of my other suits. Now, let's see. There's the uh, whistle, a plaid, a tweed, and that dark one is a twill. A twill? Certainly. Didn't you ever have a twill? Oh, sure. I get a big twill when I ride on the wall of twill. Nah, no. <laughs> Don't be silly. Wait a minute. twilly. Here's just the suit for you. It belongs to my father. It's his dinner suit. Uh, there's a little breakfast on it, too. No, 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 you dummy. This is his soup and fish. It looks like egg to me. Listen, Costa. <laughs> When you lived at home, didn't your family dress for dinner? Why, certainly we dressed. Oh. What do you think we did? Come to the table in our underwear? Look, <laughs> what's the matter with you? Didn't you ever wear dinner clothes? Yeah, I always wear pajamas. Pajamas are not dinner clothes. They are if you eat in bed. Oh, <laughs> that isn't what I mean. You see, as long as I can remember, the men in our family have always worn their tails to dinner. That's a very pretty picture. Yes, it is. <laughs> Where I come from, a man with tails is called a gentleman. Where I come from, we call a monkey. Oh. <laughs> I mean, after all, that's uh, what they call him. Come in. Oh, oh. it's Ken Niles. Ken Say, Niles. Ken. Costello needs a suit in a hurry. Can he borrow yours? Oh, uh, well, uh, I'll have to go outside and ask a little woman. A little woman? Her neck alone is three feet long. <laughs> that remark, Costello. I'll have you know my neck is not long. Oh, no? Last time I saw a neck like that, a jockey was bending over it. <laughs> <laughs> Am I insulting you? <laughs> How dare you compare me to a horse? Why, I have an aristocratic face. My grandfather was a count. You're right. Count Fleet. 
<laughs> Kenneth, are you going to stand there and let Costello compare me to a horse? Nay, nay. Well, um, that was a very snappy part. Costello, with your appearance, you're a fine one to talk about Mrs. Niles. Certainly. Just look at yourself, fat boy. I'm not fat. Oh, no? I saw you fall down yesterday and you rocked yourself to sleep trying to get up. <laughs> oh, now, look. Now, look, let's stop this fighting. Uh, look, Mrs. Niles, Costello has to borrow a suit for the broadcast tonight. Uh, yes, dear. Uh, may I lend him mine? Kenneth Niles, before I let you do that, I'd lock you up in the attic. But, gee, dear, you, you just let me out. <laughs> oh. Come in. Hello, boys. Oh, it's my friend Meyer, the butcher. What's going on, Meyer? Oh, boy, boy, am I excited. What is happening to me today shouldn't happen to two dogs. One dog couldn't handle it. <laughs> Why, what's the matter? Oh, it's my wife, Sophie. After ten years, it's going to happen. Today is the day, and I got to be by her side. So you got to come over right away, Louie, and take care of my butcher shop, huh? Now, wait a minute, Meyer. I can't do that. We're going to broadcast. I'm going to do a love scene with, Lo with Lynn Barry. But, Louie, would you rather do a love scene with Lynn Barry than mine, mine butcher shop? Can a duck swim? That's a silly answer. You ask silly questions, you get silly answers. <laughs> Costello, come on. We have to get to the studio. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Think of my wife. Louie, you'll never do anything for me. Meyer, you shouldn't say that. Now, I do. Now, five years ago, I gave you the money to open up the butcher shop. And when you were sick, I paid for the operation. Then when the government was going to put you in jail, I paid your income tax. And six months ago, when your house was on fire, I ran into the burning building and saved your life. And you say I never do anything for you. Yeah, but what have you done for me lately? Well, Costello, you had to open your big mouth just because you want to help Meyer. We're stuck here in a butcher shop. Now, come on, we might as well get the orders out. Uh, you dress the chickens. Me dress the chickens? Why should I? They're old enough to dress themselves. No, I'll dress the chickens. You bring me the other fowl. What fowl? That uh, duck. Why should I duck? I'm not ashamed to help, Meyer. No, I mean duck. Duck in the icebox. Why should I duck in the icebox? You duck in the icebox, oh, you big sissy. Now, here, take it easy. I'm glad to help my friend Meyer and his wonderful little woman. All right. I know what they're going through. Why, only last week a little stranger came to live at our house. Really? Yes, my sister married a midget. Oh, come on. <laughs> Costello, you're impossible. Hello, Meyer's Butcher Shop. Hello? This is Meyer on the wire. Oh, Meyer, how's the wife? Anything happened yet? No, Louie, it's a very slow process. Uh, how's things by the shop? Oh, listen, Meyer, Mrs. Jones sent back the Christmas turkey you sold her. She says it only has one leg. What does she want to do, eat it or dance with it? Oh. Well, did Meyer say when he's coming back? Do you realize that Lynn Barry's probably at the studio now waiting for us? Now, Abbott, this is more important. Let her wait. I got plenty of women waiting for me. 50, 60, 70. 50, 60, 70? Yes, and I wish I could find some a little younger. Oh, come on. <laughs> now, Abbott, beautiful women always chase me. At any minute, a gorgeous girl is apt to walk in that door. Oh, there you are, Costello. Oh. Oh. So you want to borrow my Kenneth suit, eh? So you were going to make love to Lynn Berry, eh? And now I find you in a butcher shop, eh? You're going to run out of eight coupons. <laughs> Costello, for your information, Mrs. Niles is one of Meyer's best customers. Yeah, Now, yeah. take her order. Huh? Yes. I said, take her order. Take her I order where? To... Did you come in with an order? Never mind that. Take what do you want one. me to take it? Just take it. Listen Somebody is lost. I, uh... I... <laughs> Mr. Costello, 
Costello. Yes, dear. I want 20 cents worth of dog meat. Shall I wrap it up or do you want to eat it here? <laughs> no, wrap. Oh! Oh, that's the last straw. Now, you see? Now, look what you've done. Oh, I've never been so insulted in all my life. After all these years of trading with my eyes, I have to come in here and be humiliated. Costello, Costello, don't stand there. Apologize. Okay. Come on. Mrs. Niles, if I said anything to offend you, I'm glad of it. Uh, (laughs) Costello, I said apologize. Okay. Mrs. Niles, I'm sorry I suggested that you eat the dog meat here. That's the first portion of the Abbott and Costello Show, December 16th, 1943. Uh, Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, and their special guest, Lynn Berry. Also in that cast, you heard Connie Haynes, Ken Niles doing the announcing. That was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. We have removed the Camel Cigarettes uh, commercials. We don't want you to smoke. Plus, I don't think we can air commercials on the radio. Definitely not. Yeah, hope you enjoyed that first portion of Abbott and Costello. We'll have the conclusion to it, along with the Mole Mystery Theater in our next hour. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Lisa, I know you're a fan of cold hard cash. So am I. And if you have jewelry that's just sitting in your dresser drawer or in a safety deposit box, why not turn it into that green stuff? Turn it into cash by calling Matt Burdine. I'll give you his number. 800-875-4418. Matt Burdine owns Burdine's Jewelry. Now, their website is is burdines.com, which is B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. When you mention this radio show, you will receive a free appraisal on your fine jewelry, and Matt will pay you top, top dollar. I have sent them a lot of people, many of my friends, many of my family members, Everyone has been really happy. I trust Matt Burdeen. I've sent Lisa to him. Yep. Just go to his website, Burdeen's, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S dot com, or call the toll-free number and talk to Matt, 800-875-4418. He will give you a free appraisal when you mention this radio show, and you can turn some of that uh, fine jewelry that you don't wear anymore into cold, hard cash. Matt also owns a beautiful jewelry store where you can purchase new items. Uh, if somebody is very special, that lucky girl or guy, you want to look for a beautiful jewelry gift, Matt Burdine is also the guy to check out. I'll tell you what, when you go to his website, mm. check out some of the Gorgeous. pieces he has. Go to Burdine's, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S dot com. All right, when we come back from the news, it's the conclusion to Abbott and Costello, and then a good mystery on the Mole Mystery Theater from 1945. That's all coming your way right after the news. <laughs> 